Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. And this is a podcast where we bring indigenous worldviews and western worldviews into conversations about science in Indian country and also around the world. But we're not experts and we don't have all the answers, but we're always curious. So we're always exploring new ideas. And for today's episode, we're exploring the difference between food sovereignty and food security. But we also get into a few more specifics because it's a pretty big topic, right, Annie? Mm -hmm. It is. And we really talk about like our journey into food sovereignty and really our opinions on how food sovereignty can be used in in indigenous communities and and around the world as well. Mm -hmm. And since we're from the United States, we zero in on this system we got here now known as commodities to most people on the res but we also touch on ideas like food deserts and certain definitions that were really important in kind of starting this movement and Mm -hmm. um, where those things come from yeah and guiding principles um, that are used in successful indigenous um, food sovereignty movements currently Mm -hmm. and then we kind of we get off track a few times, but <laughs> eventually we kind of come back around to the idea of word use and mm-hmm. how sustainability is a very noble cause. And a lot of people are doing really cool, great projects in that area. But that as indigenous people, we kind of have a certain responsibility almost to to re-indigenize what we do have and use different words to mm-hmm. describe kind of what we're doing. That's basically it. This is a pretty cool episode. I had fun. I had fun, yeah. yeah it was really difficult to try to keep dense. focused, <laughs> I think, because mostly because there's so many layers to that. And we even touch on that, just how multifaceted mm-hmm. this issue is between food sovereignty and food security. They're very interrelated, and um, we felt like we couldn't really bring up one without talking about the other. So. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, enjoy the show. Yeah, enjoy. Listen? What do you enjoy about it? Hmm. Is it a show? It's a good point. Do you listen? Do I listen? Podcast. Oh, yeah. To this one? Yeah. Yeah. Right now. Welcome to this week's episode. Yes. Trying things a little different. Where, uh... <laughs> 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 uh, I don't even know. Do you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. So, <laughs> on this week's episode, yeah. I guess, we are going to be talking about food security and food sovereignty. And we kind of wanted to start off with kind of telling where our journeys start with food sovereignty. And I know mine is, because I think I dealt with it more recently, I my last semester while I was at grad school kind of really uh, took over a lot of what I wanted to do for the foreseeable future of my life, I guess. Like Mm. it it kind of really put in perspective what is important to me as an indigenous woman scientist. And one of the, one of the things that I found is this idea of food sovereignty and really, giving people indigenous people the right to grow food that they want to grow because I I worked with Onondaga nation and then those ladies at the farm crew and they take sovereignty pretty seriously. They do. But, but at the same time, it's like a, it's natural and they're funny and they're just like really strong ladies. They're the strong indigenous women and just being surrounded by them makes you yourself feel empowered and like you can take on anything and you can really start something from scratch like they did. And then now they're 120 acres and they each cover an acre themselves. And there's, it's just like this, thing that they're doing for the tribe and their nation and their people Hmm. it's just really really cool and i want to do it for cskt now and and so now i'm all fired up and into food sovereignty uh, yeah i love moments or kind of projects like that where you and it seems to come either through immense pain or some kind of like repeated experience Mm -hmm where some something really just settles really deep and kind of resonates 
with yeah. you. That's how I think most change happens, yeah. personally. Yeah, well, I had like a really hard first semester, I guess, where I was a TA, I was a gen bio TA, and I had 350 students and I had to lead workshops twice a week. Mm, I, I had that to was attend. Painful, right? Yeah, oh mm. my gosh. And grading. <sighs> like I had 350 exams yeah. that we had to grade a page on. And quizzes. Oh, and then you had to work with other TAs too. Yeah, so, so I had two That's... other TAs and so we had to coordinate times and it was a it was a rough and I was away from home and I was really unsure about my research because I didn't have time. I was stressing over by um one of my biogeography classes and like how I felt like the teacher wasn't willing to help me because I wanted to do an indigenous science perspective and he wanted like a really really hard science research project to present to the class at the end of the year and I wanted to find a research project that had indigenous roots and it felt like he wasn't willing to help me because every time I'd ask, he'd be like, oh, well, that's something that I don't know about. And mm. so it felt like he would just kind of brush me off. And I had to deal with that. And you saved my butt on my on my end of the year presentation PowerPoint because I could not figure out my GIS side. Like I was struggling and I couldn't figure out my polygons and I couldn't clip it. And I was I was struggling, but I found a way to make a very, very hard science like biogeography into using kind of indigenous knowledge. Hmm. And yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I looked at canoe length, like the size of canoe in relation to the amount of water body, water body that was located around them and in like in their ancestral lands and kind of really determined if, more water body equaled larger sizes of canoes. And and it was interesting. Like, mm. you got to use... I, I used a lot of, like, colonial work that was done that... Back in the day, they would size and measure everything. And so they had really good... Really, they took really good measurements. Yeah. So I feel like you, you and I had very different challenges. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much both semesters mm -hmm. last year. And so really that first semester of uh, food sovereignty was pretty much like an afterthought in your life. right? It was. And I just didn't know. And then you were the, then it was really interesting because then the next semester you were the TA yep. and it was for the class that I that me and Kaya were taking. And it was indigenous indigenous issues and the environment in the environment. Yeah. And we had to, as grad students, do a service project, and, and Kaya asked me if I wanted to tag along to his service project, because I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, and he really kind of encouraged me to come along with him, so I did, and it was at this at Onondaga Nation with these ladies, and when you're around extremely strong, confident Indigenous women... I think I said this to like so many people. They make you feel like you belong there and that what you're doing is extremely important and they give you so much strength to do what you didn't think you can do because they started off with 13 seeds and now they're growing multiple things and they have 120 acres and they're just like kicking butt and council didn't think that they can do it. And then they proved them that they can do it. And one of the things that I, that Angie, who, who really kind of is the head lady there, who really kind of is having the strong push for food sovereignty. Um, one of the, the brilliant things that she talks about. And when you just listen to her and you have conversations with her, she just, opens your eyes to a certain side that you you didn't know was there. And so one of the, the quotes was, nobody sees it but you. Okay, so wait, hold on. Nobody sees it, but you are solidifying your relationship with Earth and not participating in the corrupt food systems because they grow extremely, mm. like, 
they grow corn and it's not the genetically modified corn. Yeah. And that's true on a lot of levels. Yeah. Was she just, were you, were you guys just hanging out or something? And yeah. she said that? You just hang out. So we, yeah. me and that's Kaya helped out with, with sorting yeah. seeds, like number ones, number twos, number threes. And so you like, your hands are just in seeds all day and you're, you're touching these, this valuable food source and, and I love how they're they're used for everything. Like mm-hmm. every seed is used for something. Yeah, every even every color has a different function for your body. Yeah. You know, like it's just when you sit there and you talk to these ladies and I'm gonna have them when we're back in New York, I'm having them on the show and I don't know what we're gonna do. We're gonna make it like a long, long series or something. I don't know where I want to dedicate a few episodes to them at least because hmm. I think what they're doing is it's just amazing. And I think it's a great, great indigenous women just yeah, showing I agree. that you can do it. I totally agree. I think these kinds of stories need to be shared as much as possible. And how it gets shared and by who is pretty important. So in some ways, I feel like as an indigenous person comfortable talking about stuff to other people Mm -hmm. we have like a responsibility to help other people share like help share other people's stories and you already did that and i think that is probably one of the cool one of the cooler aspects of what i saw you get out of this experience was you you're able to soak all of that in Mm -hmm. not just the knowledge but all that just being there and being around them and then you got to help them share their story and you got to tell a little bit of your story as a part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I had never really been in, like, I like plants, but a lot of my science, like throughout science, like I really enjoy mammals and I really enjoy animals and in, and really like movements of, of, of mammals and, in conservation of mammals. So I, I, I didn't really focus a lot on plants and like botany and I understand the importance of it. And, you know, bitterroot, we, we have all these stories that are extremely important to, to bitterroot Salish people and switching my mindset now to focus on, on an ethnobotanical research project. I don't think I could have done without these ladies. And I know it's because they found what they're, they want to do with their life and they're making a positive change They're and they're doing it. And just being around that energy is, I think mm. everyone should find a, a group of strong indigenous women and like, just cling to them and like absorb whatever they know. Yeah. That, that kind of an experience is really rare too, to be mm-hmm. able to learn from the best and learn from people that, not only know what they're talking about, but people that actually really truly care about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That, that I think is something that is just, it's completely pr- priceless. You mm-hmm. just can't replace it with anything. And uh, I realized that how I got into food sovereignty was almost the exact opposite where I grew up learning and knowing how to find and identify food and medicine plants. And so I was really comfortable all the by all pretty much by the time I was, I don't know, 14, 15 of going up in the woods by myself and feeding myself Mm -hmm. and knowing that if I really had to, I could, I could maybe fit, fit in with the seasons. And, but I always knew that I wouldn't be able to do that alone. And that's what got me into survival stuff. And that got me into prepping. <laughs> and then that's what how I got into sustainability. Yeah. Or whatever you want to call it. I don't really like that word, sustainability. But the point I'm getting at here is that... Uh, I actually don't know what I was trying to get at there. My story is definitely different where I, end up, I burned myself out, basically, mm-hmm. on trying to be sustainable and trying to be what... Uh, basically prepared and a part of that was this huge fear that I developed for myself about the end of the world and apocalypse and stuff and so I got in got into collapse scenario and all these things and I had dreams about that when I was a kid too that really scared me so I don't know if that was 
it's like a chicken or the egg thing. Maybe yeah. I was obsessed with it, so I had dreams about it, or maybe I had dreams and then I got obsessed, or both, or I don't know. But for about two or three, but yeah, about two years, I was just gung ho about being prepared and sustainability, and I realized that food was a huge part of that. That was it's it was central to both of those survival and uh the apocalypse like mm-hmm. a lot of collapses of societies in the past really didn't happen until people couldn't eat anymore and then yeah. that's when it started to fall apart even though it like may very well have been doomed for a long time that final like kind of the final domino is <laughs> the uh the food situation which I guess leads us to like really that's just what food security is in itself, right? Yeah. It's survival. Just, yeah, just being able to have food to survive. Hmm. And so I, that's what everyone thinks food sovereignty is too. I think, or I don't know, maybe they don't. I don't know if people. Th- oh yeah, I guess think maybe, maybe some the people. Same, but I, I think uh, there's probably a whole range. They probably like, think it's like an interchangeable thing. Yeah. Well, at least from the, the people that have asked me what I think about what I think about that subject. I had actually. I was way more familiar with food sovereignty than food security. Mm-hmm. Uh, food security kind of just seems so obvious, like just like a baseline condition that it never really seemed like a concern, but it is for a lot of people in the world. It is. That they literally cannot eat enough food to live a happy, productive life. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Americans definitely forget about that, that we have a... a a lot of food we have access to an insane amount of food here in this country but most of what the weird part is most of it's really bad for us right (laughs) it's so crazy a lot i mean some of it i would even say is poison and that's pretty crazy uh that reminds me of this joe rogan quote i saw recently that uh says that uh i can't remember exactly what it was saying but he's basically saying that we live in a world where poor people are fat. Think about that. Just yeah, think about that. It's true, though, that's, because that's, that's all they trip. can afford. Yeah, you can't afford that organic, expensive food when yeah. you when you live in a when you're in your poverty, man. You can't you can't afford that. I know, and I mean, even uh, even if you do have money for it, mm-hmm. just understanding what is good for you and what's not good for you, there's a lot of I think confusion about that because. There's so many different opinions out there from experts about what's healthy and what's not healthy mm-hmm. to eat. So, yeah, there's so many layers to food sovereignty. Like there's that, that this layer, the health and wellness aspect of it. And then even um, I would say the one that is deeply missing from the sustainability movement, which is what I was kind of riding that wave a few years ago, but kind of I backed away when I got burnt out on prepping and I wouldn't have called myself a prepper back then. But now that I think back, (laughs) I I was definitely uh, kind of on that end of the spectrum. But anyways, the, what was I talking about? I got sidetracked. (laughs) Um, Oh yeah. There's a lot of layers to this. It's easy to get sidetracked. It is. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is going to be just the kind of a, episode where we just kind of talk about it so it's gonna be a conversation that's cool we can um we can back up our talk with citations because <laughs> we do have later. articles <laughs> of course yeah. i mean i know where i come from my family we extremely into health care because of my mother my, my mother works for tribal health here and she's always been in the healthcare fields and i think one of the important parts that people don't think about is is commodities and really how commodities is this colonized system that really keeps us from being food sovereign because fry bread, sorry people, fry bread wasn't a traditional food. At least for for my people it wasn't. Mm. It only came with with, the, with these yeah, commodities. I don't, I don't think anybody's... Maybe there's some form of it for, like, with corn or mm-hmm. other Yeah, like, I'm things, sure there is. But not... 
Yeah, not 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 for yeah. like my tribe, not northwestern area, you know. But believe me, I've tried with all sorts of different kinds of different wheats, and it doesn't taste <laughs> very good unless you use just the plain white. Like, at least you can just get unbleached flour, right? But that goes back to the whole survival thing. That's mm-hmm. they call them commodities. It kind of makes it sound. It almost makes it sound like I don't know how it sounds, but it doesn't sound bad. Whereas rations. That's a whole nother story, and that's basically what the commodity system is, is it's a carry-on from the rationing system of when the res- uh, all reservations were established. <clears throat> yeah, which, I mean, I think it just proves that a lot of reservations as well live in food deserts where they don't have access to a lot of healthy foods, and you're left with the dependence of rural reservations uh, with commodities and that government handout like that government what is it subsidy is that what it is that that, that yeah that it's helps. kind of like a subsidy yeah that helps but, uh, low-income households i think maybe the difference between or uh, i don't know i'm not totally sure about the legal definition of subsidies but i was just thinking about the legal definition or relationship mm-hmm. between federally recognized tribes and the government as it's stipulated in all the different yeah the treaties like, federal laws and the treaties so they're they well I guess yeah I guess thing I guess I was wrong because they're and uh, I guess why, guaranteed food right in yeah treaties. I was wondering I'm I was just thinking that I think I might be mistaken on this but I think that not all tribes got commodities or do can are getting commodities so, today so yeah so commodities is part of the food distribution program on Indian reservations uh-huh. and it was uh, so is it all reservations. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's going to be for, well, kind yeah, yeah. So, Kinda. um, it's elderly, so it's, it's living on Indian reservations or near reservations, um, and then it's the whole state of Oklahoma. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it was an alternative to SNAP. Oh, hmm. I remember growing, I grew up on commodities. But at a certain point, my mom stopped using them going and she never did do like snap and food stamps or anything like that. Isn't that what snap is? I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The crazy part about it is do you are you old enough to remember when they used the the white label, the black and white boxes? Yeah. For everything. Yeah. 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 I'm I've been curious about what the story is with that. Why did they disappear? Because now it. It's kind of all different brands like mm-hmm. and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I haven't done enough research to really. Yeah, I miss that cereal. The just the brown, <laughs> those brown squares. It was almost like a mix between life. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it was unique. There's nothing like commodity <laughs> brown squares <laughs> cereal, and everybody lo- seemed to love commodity cheese, but I never really did. I was, I've never really big been that big of a fan of cheese until I started to try like really good cheese, high mm-hmm. quality cheese where they actually take care of the, the milk and they use good milk and all that stuff. Yeah. We, uh, we're at the farmer's market in Missoula on Saturday. Me and my mom go every Saturday morning. Yeah. And, uh, oh, we have been the last two weeks and I hope it continues. Man, I want to go to that. Yeah. That one. And, uh, one. she bought a, uh, mango habanero cheese that was made in missoula and she mm. said it was really good so you should go check out mango check out That's, that and that kinda see sounds how it like is. a good mix yeah and i mean i think farmers market are like a great example of of like kind of food sovereignty like really yeah because you get a really you get to choose and you get to actually mm-hmm. meet the people that are taking care of those plants yeah like and that cheese yeah <laughs> like in syracuse they have an insane oh. farmer's market I didn't even think about that one. Yeah. I, I know. I, I kind of. It's huge. Yeah. I kind of just had my mind blown all over again thinking <laughs> about it. I'd almost forgotten about it. It's literally. How long do you think those warehouses are? About 100 meters, like 100 yards ish? 100 yards ish, yeah. yeah, at least. And there's what, five of them? Yeah. Six? And then there's like stands in it's between crazy. them. There's full so many. Uh, it's very redundant, that's for sure. Yeah. But it's really cool. There's a there's a lot of different um, farming styles mm-hmm. that you get to choose from if you're willing to like ask questions and yeah, and talk to them and like they're really like 
a lot of the ones they'll talk to you about what they grow and like what they use and mm-hmm. and I'm like, I just really like it. I know that's my favorite thing yeah. to do if I can is to meet the people that are taking care of the meat or the plants that mm-hmm. I'm going to be eating for for spiritual and cultural reasons. But really, over time, I've realized that maybe it's just a placebo thing or something or perception, but it feels like the food just tastes better and it, yeah. it's more nourishing. So, and, and uh, it, if food's such a huge part of our life, why not make it a better experience? Exactly. And like, why not make it like culturally specific? Like why not hmm. grow the food that is important yeah. to the people? Especially when you go and visit places mm-hmm. to actually meet the people that are taking care of that place and the plants and know how to actually take take care of them in the kitchen too because in a mm-hmm. lot of ways if you don't take care of certain plants a certain way then not it won't taste as good and it won't be as nutritious and did you learn about how to do the corn stuff because i know i heard neil talk about it in class where they did the ash and all that but did those ladies ever talk about it oh um maybe that's something i'm really in, yeah. i really want to that stuff is so insanely good. The corn ma- mush. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, <laughs> I, I really liked that. it with the bacon. I miss that so much. <laughs> oh, that that has definitely the one of the most delicious things I've ever had in my life. Yeah, and I think that's a part of it. It's not just the fact that it's corn mush and it tastes good, but there's so many. There's a lot of meaning to to it. Visiting and getting to know a new people and new a new place and. It's awesome. Food is so awesome. Right. And like that's one of the things that I found really interesting, especially being over in New York, is is trying a new kind of indigenous palate mm-hmm. where you're not quite used to that kind of food. Yeah. Like we've tried pawpaws, which is the largest fruit in North America, which mm. I didn't know existed. Oh, we never did do you never did the bread. Weren't you gonna do I pop? did. I oh, did. did. I made pawpaw bread and mm. I brought it to Catherine's defense. Oh, and you missed out. I brought it, and we had I a, missed it because we had that uh, dinner. We had my, our so that's my bad. We had I, our cohort meeting. I didn't afterwards. do the bread. I missed the bread. <laughs> yeah, me and Annabelle made it. Dang, and it was really good. And and that the pawpaw is really cool because their distribution is because of indigenous people moving them, and and mm-hmm. and, and this this active this this passive movement where mm. it was really, so it's really cool. Then I had beaver for the first time. I missed that too. I I don't know if I'm a big beaver fan. Beaver tail, right? Yep. Yeah, I, I missed I, it. I think that I, I really personally wanted to try that yeah. too. I'm going to. I bet. I bet I'll. Neil will hook it up. <laughs> Hopefully. And and being with Neil, like he really is. He's another person that that is just really strong, and and he's a great teacher and very knowledgeable on on his own his yeah. own people and. I love Neil. And it makes you want to be the same. Like, it makes you want to be that type of person for your people. And, like, I want to absorb all of his knowledge, and then I want to come back and absorb all of my own, Hmm. my own nation's knowledge. Yeah, I feel very similar. It's a huge, pretty much a lifelong goal of mine to constantly surround myself with people that are better than me. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, and that's really just the goal. There's not, the goal isn't to get anything from them, but just to be around them. Naturally, they're going to rub off on you eventually, (laughs) but also you're going to rub off on them too. That's how every teacher learn student relationship works. I mean, if they're a good teacher, yeah, I should say. Um, And I think Neil is definitely, I think, I don't think he quite knows it, but He's one of the best teachers that I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. And a, a huge part of it is he's brave enough to bring indigenous, more kind of indigenous methods into a class mm-hmm. and let things flow in a little bit of a, dif- a d- different direction than I think a lot of other people in academia would be willing to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just that there people are afraid or anything. I think it's sometimes... Maybe just a lack of imagination <laughs> or or maybe just um, that's how they are like to learn. So mm-hmm. that's how they're trying to teach versus like opening it up to a more indigenized kind of method, which is definitely Neil's style. So I guess this is this is a shout out to Neil 
Right. Neil yeah. Patterson. We love you, man. And if you happen to be listening, awesome. Uh, anybody else at ESF, go take his classes. He's a great teacher, and uh, he definitely op- helped open my mind to a lot of new things that I had no clue about before. And Cornmush was one of them. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I just can't get over how good that stuff is, especially I threw a, a, like a little bit of butter in there, mm-hmm. and that just was just... It's... Uh, uh, I, I I struggle to describe it with words. And I think that's something that maybe gets overlooked is is how colonized our palates are now. Hmm. And kind of really decolonizing your palate to go back to indigenous foods can kind of be hard for people. Yeah. I think decolonization and food sovereignty definitely are uh, a part of that big it's almost part of this bigger process that indigenous people are now going through it to um, just regain our identity Mm -hmm. and to live the way our ancestors did. Maybe not, maybe that's a poor phrasing, not live the way they did, but go back to the old ways. Yeah. And every, I'd say probably every native person I ever met knows about a phrase that kind of goes along those lines that we all kind of have our way of saying that we need that's something we need to do mm-hmm. to save our people and to save the earth <clears throat> and with that being said there are quite a few definitions out there for food sovereignty and food security but as far as food sovereignty is concerned this is something you actually found that I ended up just kind of stumbling on as I was reading through one of the articles that I've um, had come across the uh, I don't think I'm saying it cr- properly either do you have that in front of you the name of that oh yeah the La um, Via Compensina okay that and that was this is the very first place that this word food sovereignty or this phrase yeah, food so sovereignty so they came, right? introduced the right of food sovereignty at the World Food Summit in 1996 yeah. So it was kind of like the first time that it was really brought forward on like a world scale. While it happens in smaller communities, um, a lot of them are indigenous communities. Um, this was kind of the first time that it was really openly brought forth. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a little bit more recent. I'm not sure if it was a summit. Uh, it, they call it a forum. It's this... Uh, the Declaration of Nyaleni, and it's the very first global forum specifically on food sovereignty, whereas this other one was, food sovereignty was a part of it, but it was generally just a food summit, right? Mm-hmm. This one was specific to food sovereignty, and they built on that, uh, what they had earlier. Um, what Do you have the definition of what they actually came up with during that yeah. one in the 90s? Yeah, I do. So it's the right of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food um, that is produced through sustainable methods and their right to decline their own food in agricultural... Oh, whoops. And the right to define their own food in agricultural systems. And I think it's really cool because they also um, kind of go in deeper about what what the phrase culturally appropriate means. Mm-hmm. And so they want that to signify that the food that is available and accessible for the population should fit with the cultural background of the people consuming it. So it's really like individual, mm. like like your nation is individual in itself and, and your community is individual to, to what you're used to and yeah. like what you grow there. And so what countries were involved again? Um, so this was a grassroots movement, which I think is really, really cool because it is... Uh, it is also known as the pheasant, the the peasants way. <laughs> I did that again. I said yeah. pheasants this morning, and it's like still stuck in my head. Peasants, the peasants way, um, and it was founded by farmers organizations from Europe, Latin America, Asia, North America, Central America, and Africa. Hmm. Wow. So it's a. So it's almost like a more universal mm-hmm. where they weren't focusing on their differences, but more like. 
What do we agree on? Yeah, so they have 182 organizations in 81 countries um, that really advocate for family farm-based sustainable agriculture. Hmm, that's cool. And they uh, this other this global forum on food sovereignty in Mali in 2007 that was they took that exact definition. And I'm not sure if they added to it or if this is like. Uh, new or anything or if they just quote are quoting the one you're talking about the world oh, really? summit but this one has like a, a has a second su- sentence added to it where it says it puts so uh, i'm just gonna say the whole thing over again real quick so food sovereignty is the right of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems and the second part says it puts the aspirations and needs of those who produce distribute and consume food at the heart of the food system and policies rather than the demands of markets and corporations Mm -hmm. so is that just all straight from the food summit no 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 so that was that was all like i think they definitely Built okay. on it. See, that's cool. Yeah. So it, it's growing, and the def, it, mm-hmm. the def, uh, these definitions are evolving. Oh, definitely. And I love that uh, indigenous people are defining it for themselves. Yeah, and and I think that is that that is really cool that there is this indigenous food sovereignty movement itself, and mm-hmm. and kind of how <clears throat> it could be more centralized to what indigenous people need. And one of the areas that uh, Kaya and I had to give a presentation at the end of the semester on our service project, and I came across this indigenous system, this indigenous food systems network, and uh, it's about uh, this is a this group is called the Working Group of Indigenous Food Sovereignty, and and they kind of um, kind of. Uh, came up with guiding principles for um, food sovereignty today in indigenous communities. And I feel like those four that they have came up with is, is really apparent in, in that definition that you just read. Mm-hmm. Um, and the four that they said is sacred or divine sovereignty, um, participatory, um, self-determination, and then also policy. So I think that the very end of your definition talked about really policy changes need to happen for food sovereignty to really, really occur in indigenous communities. Hmm. Now the hard question is how do those policies get changed? How do they actually get changed? And the next word that comes to my mind is reform, but (laughs) that's such a slow process. I'm not sure that we have time left for reform, honestly. And that gets me thinking of our last episode where we talked about revolutions and scientific revolutions and how really it's the worldview that's guiding those policies that are being Mm -hmm. created. So unless we have people that are part of that process that have a different worldview, that's never, none of that's going to change. Yeah. So on, on there, this indigenous food systems network, um, what they say for the policy, I think I kind of really, really like, uh, They talk about how it's an attempt to reconcile indigenous food and cultural values with colonial laws and policies and mainstream economic activities. Hmm. And like really interesting, they want to be able to provide a a restorative framework um, that could be policy that could be provided for policy reform and forestry, fisheries, rangeland, environmental conservation, health, agricultural and rural and community development. Mm -hmm. And no, I mean, I think that's true. I think, and people have to vote. People have to vote. Yeah. And and I think it's just yeah, being aware. Really I, I think we've said that last time too. But get out there, people. Do what you need to do. Hmm. Do uh, did uh, you have anything? Any materials on the difference between food sovereignty and food security? Um. Because <clears throat> I've so... found quite a few definitions. Uh, for food security also. So what what is one of yours for like food security? Because I think we kind of touched on what 
we yeah, think so is that's kind of like the international yeah one that most like the un goes by the same definition mm-hmm. and uh the but there's a, there is a bit of a difference when you get to a national scale they tend it looks like both you the united states and canada <clears throat> look at food security in levels or i guess uh let's see the maybe not levels ranges is how the USDA describes it that there's ranges of food security from food for from high food security all the way to very low food security and there's in between and for each one they have a separate definition but they're all basically just super basic it's like we said earlier about survival and just mm-hmm. the baseline it's really just whether or not people have food yeah enough to stay alive and that's very different from food sovereignty especially the way the indigenous definitions that we just talked about allude to is because there's a deeply cultural and a deeply human component to it instead of just kind of a more commodified outlook as do you have enough or not Mm -hmm. yeah so one of my papers actually does talk about food security as being defined in by mayo at the american society of international law annual meeting in 2007 uh-huh. and just to, to uh, i just want to stress the point that it should definitely not be underplayed because mm-hmm. there are many parts of the world where food security is the primary concern mm-hmm. just trying to feed themselves is um especially with water shortages uh people not being able to grow their own crops and their own indigenous foods so that's i mean you can't leave water out and and uh so food security and food sovereignty are very related yeah so food security at at this at least the the paper that i'm reading is is defined as physical social and economic access to sufficient safe and nutritious food at all times to meet the population's dietary and food preferences for an active for an active and healthy life hmm Sorry, I missed the beginning. Was that for food sovereignty or security? Security. Oh, wow. That's way more um, than the government site has. The government very doesn't really allude to all the all the other human Yeah, stuff. it looks like it was just a quote from D. Moyo. And uh, that was at the American Society of International Law annual meeting. Oh. Where this so was is said. he an expert on food security or food sovereignty? Um, so this was for the status in Africa, okay. which I mean. I had another one here from Canada, too, where they actually have a whole system for determining food security status. And again, they have these different categories, the kind of going from food secure to not secure, basically, mm-hmm. except they have just less categories. And I'm not going to read that, but I just wanted to bring these two up. Because it alludes to how simple and baseline food security is and should be. So at the very least, food security is a human right. Yeah. Um, as Especially in a world uh, where capitalism basically sets up a situation where poor people are in, unable to get access to certain aspects of society. And also certain resources. And at the same time, having access to those things widens the gap between the people that do already have access to them because they're able to get more wealth and able to have more access to even more benefits. So this gap is a never-ending thing. And the people at the very bottom end of it, the very, very poor, that I mean, it's a day-to-day thing worrying about water and worrying about what they're going to eat and anybody that's been homeless knows exactly what that's like and so food security i think yeah i really think that it should be a human right and i also feel like because indigenous people are so tied to land and so tied to place and our plant relatives that food sovereignty should also be a human right and should be tied to the rights of nature because in a lot of ways unless 
indigenous people are food sovereign, the land will have a very hard time healing mm -hmm. because the people won't be maintaining their responsibilities to that place. And, and I also uh, think, yeah, the people will have a yeah. hard time healing as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. Like, and it's um, it's a deep part of who we are to be able to go back to eating these kinds of things. And I know when I have some, like some bison tongue and berry soup, that's my favorite thing in the world to eat. And a part of because I know who my ancestors are and I always have, but also because it tastes so good. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it would taste so good to me if I hadn't, like you were saying earlier, re-indigenized or I'm not sure how you phrased it, but decolonized, yeah, decolonized palate. my palate. <laughs> yeah, I like the word re-indigenized better. I re-indigenized my palate, but I guess maybe I really didn't. I think I could thank my mom and my grandma and like other people that fed us at ceremonies all those mm -hmm. times uh, because I definitely looked, I looked forward to that going throughout the year yeah. to go be able to go eat some bison tongue. And uh, I still do. And I know it's one of my favorite. I've never tried cow tongue, but I heard it's really good also. So it's, it's one of the best parts tongue. of the animal, but it's, there's so much difference when it's tied to place. And I, mm -hmm. I think things like community gardens and farmers markets and these rooftop gardens in cities and even uh, like a small, you can even go as small as like a, what is it? A window seal garden. Mm -hmm. And like, if you live in a, like a deeply urban setting, but I mean, then there's all these legal issues. And so, I mean, you really got to check with your building codes and all this other stuff before you can proceed with this. So that's hits on the policy. So there's so many different levels to food sovereignty that it's impossible to actually hit all this stuff in one. Yep. <laughs> one episode <laughs> it would, i mean maybe we could but it'd probably be like five six hours long i know I we know. would just be talking this whole time i know we would need <laughs> we would need some extra we need some like snacks and stuff but yeah we did cover a little bit i, I never really talked that much about my past with it i did a lot kind of a lot of work with just in college and mm -hmm. um, volunteering with organizations and stuff mostly trying to learn because i recognize that i could go out and find food and medicine in the forest and in the mountains and down by the rivers and stuff. But I didn't have a clue how to actually grow a plant. Yeah. I don't even think I'd ever even kept a house plant before I started trying to do a garden and Holy crap. Did I learn quick how hard <laughs> it is? There's so much to know to, yeah. to be able to do it properly and to do a good job at it. It's uh it's a pretty big deal. So uh, anybody out there gardening, I got to give it to you. It's, it's a lot of work, but it's definitely worth it. Heck yeah, it's so much work. Oh yeah, that <laughs> reminds me. Uh, the reason I brought up all those things just now, like the whole cities, the gardening in cities and all these different techniques of sustainability, because a lot of them came out of the state sustainability movement. It's like the European, like the settler society's attempt at trying to re-indigenize or trying to go back to the land and learn, relearn place, mm -hmm. a sense of place. And I, I see that being a pretty legit thing. If you are in a city, but you're still growing things from the ground and you can still communicate with the earth like that, it can't hurt. Right. I, I mean, at the very least, it can't hurt. And I know there's a lot of research on how healing that kind of thing, just being in a garden when all you see is pavement and sidewalks and biophilia oh, man, man. <laughs> yeah we need it yeah. we really need it and i know when i got back here and was able to be around all the green again all the, mm -hmm. that was the first thing i noticed actually on our drive back when we got into montana was how green everything is and uh oh man i, I love nature so much i'm definitely a what would what would the noun be for that a biophiliast biophiliac i'm a bio yeah i'm a biophiliac <laughs> for sure that actually gets me thinking about the word sustainability. How do you feel about that word? Because there's definitely, that's kind of the go-to word for most conversations yeah. around this idea. Um. Well, I mean, I think because maybe I focused a lot of my life on, on conservation, I don't mind the word sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um. I, think, I, I have different opinions. Yeah, I, I think to be able to be sustainable, it's to be self-determined. 
you know, yeah. It, it, it's okay, cool. Right. So you're not really getting hung up on the word itself, but yeah. it's, it represents something. I different. think the principle yeah. behind sustainability is what people need to follow. Maybe not necessarily the word itself, but mm-hmm. but really being able to provide for yourself. If if the word if the world goes south, like are are you capable enough to to live your life? And like and like really understanding that climate change is a real thing, and and understanding that humans are really struggling with what do you what do you do like how do you help with climate change when when it feels like every newspaper tells you that that we're screwed and Mm. and really kind of the sustainable efforts towards cutting down that and and kind of helping our impact and i look at sustainable as that it is kind of really being sustainable with with the land and understanding how the land works working with the land not working not making the land work for you Mm -hmm. i think that's important to note that no matter what word we choose what's more important than the actual word is the meaning that we attach to those Mm -hmm. words because especially with english it can be a little bit different depending on how you grew up and where you come from and i've been thinking about that a lot too that English is really one of the only languages in the world that that's true with and why probably why they've said it's the hardest language to learn if you it's not your first language mm-hmm. is because of how adaptable the meaning for each word can be yes. and it's it's a gift and a curse trust me i mean it's my first language and i also i mean it's a cool fascinating language but i freaking i don't know man sometimes it's frustrating for sure to just to try to communicate with people mm-hmm. uh, and uh, choose the the word that you're wanting to choose. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to, to at least ask these kinds of questions of ourselves. Like, what does this word really represent? And I like, I, I could agree with you, but I guess I'm just, I've come across other people's perceptions of, what sustainability yeah. means and especially in an economic sense sustainable yeah. development well i feel I like that's what i love about our own politics right is like our own values and like we'll we'll alter how how you look at this word so yeah. these people have a more probably understand economics way more than i do because i i i no idea so i mean i think it's great when other people have a disagreement and then you you learn from them and and they provide you a a different side that you haven't had the chance to realize till now Hmm. yeah there's no such thing as failure Mm -hmm. only feedback tony robbins said that and he's pretty cheesy i mean because i made that saying it can sound really cheesy when taken out of context without a little bit of explanation because there's definitely a lot more to it than that i mean yeah uh the way I see that is that the universe is telling us something. Mother Earth giving us a lot of signals that we need to change mm-hmm. and we need to change fast because nature's not going to wait. Yep. And unless we're at least more aware of the words that we choose and how we perceive them, then that change is going to be really difficult in my opinion. To, to be able to like really work through it um, because I think we people do get hung up on words. People really get hung up on words and what that word means in the context of their reality. Uh, so if if you don't like the word sustainability, what what's a word that you the principle that that you kind of like? Like what what word would you stand behind? Would you stand behind one? Mm, not one word. I think that if there was going to be one word, uh, it would be the one that Neil brought up in class where, and he brought it up in that context of sustainable development that, well, if you're constantly developing, it's not sustainable inherently. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I, I even, I think this is my very first paper I wrote when I was in undergraduate school was about growth and how capitalism is designed to just grow nonstop. And how that is inherently unsustainable. It cannot last indefinitely. But, um, and I guess if, uh, if I was going to choose one word, it'd be that one that Neil brought up, which was regenerative. 
So regenerative development. We've talked all about Neil. Yeah. A lot of this episode. So what is? So I think that maybe we should bring him and see if uh, he he's down to doing interviews. <laughs> maybe uh, when we go back, or hopefully he can come visit or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I like that word regenerative, but really I think the best way I, that I would think to phrase it would be just to go back to your people's ways, mm-hmm. go b- the ways of that place, and um, wherever you're gonna be, it's gonna be different. And the first place you should check in with is the people that mm-hmm. are there, either trying to uphold their responsibilities or doing an amazing job at it. I guess it'll depend, kind of how far-reaching the effect of colonialism has been in that community. I think that's good to just be aware of the words we choose. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to have a topic where we're going to we're gonna pick a really subjective, touchy word and try to bring some objectivity to it, you know, Indian science style. <laughs> so, yeah, this was a, a fun episode and kind of bounced around a lot and yeah. kind of just talked about kind of just really our story and our travels through food sovereignty and you know those introduction classes in undergraduate school Mm -hmm. i kind of feel like we got a mini one of those condensed into just an hour (laughs) or that's kind of what we were yeah it's kind of like an intro we'll probably have a part two coming up i don't Mm -hmm. know maybe maybe in a little i'd like the idea of uh, checking out a successful (laughs) food uh, sustainability or not sustainable i got that stuck in my head now uh sovereignty a food sovereignty project maybe we could highlight um, something you've come across or maybe we could both bring something. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, we could do a road trip. I don't know. We could go to Muckleshoot. Oh, huh, yeah. Muckleshoot I didn't think about that. Some good stuff going on. Yeah, that would be... We're close. It's a good idea. Who knows? Anyways, it's a huge topic, so there's yeah. so many directions we could take this conversation and it's definitely not over. And mm-hmm. I've said this before and I'll probably say it again that we don't have all the answers. We're just grad students and we're learning a lot of these things ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we both knew pretty early on that there's this really fundamental kind of basic message that needs to be shared about how we can still be indigenous in the modern world and that science and spirituality don't have to be separate. Mm-hmm. And especially in indigenous communities. Yeah. Definitely. And and if you continue to like this show, I mean, you can find us on our Facebook and Instagram and Twitter accounts, which are all at Indian Science Show. And I think that's another fun thing about being a being indigenous in the modern world is we have social media. Mm-hmm. So you can keep up to date with us. Um, you can also find us at our website. Yeah, social media is crazy. Mm-hmm. It's at first it seems like it was going to be really daunting, but luckily... It's the modern world, and we got all this automated stuff. So you can find our episodes on Facebook. You can also find them on places like Stitcher and iTunes and Pocket Casts and stuff. Whoops, <laughs> Speaking my of, alarm. You can also find just download them on your phone yep. <laughs> and listen to them wherever you want. They are also available directly at our WordPress site, yep. which is just IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes, as well as to all, any other resources that we brought up. <laughs> but we also thought it would be cool to have a little bit of additional resources and some other articles and cool, just cool stuff uh, to <laughs> link. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Because if anybody out there is like us, I almost always like to check into things and mm-hmm. do a little extra reading if it's something that I'm interested in. Yeah. So I know, I know when we're like in full school mode, we'll read one, at least one article a day. Oh yeah. And, uh, and so we have a lot and so we, we definitely want to share them. And, and if you really are, are liking what we're doing, if, if you have uh, any questions for us, um, definitely leave us a comment, leave us a review. Don't forget to like us, share us. Um, anything really helps. And, uh, yeah, we're we're just here doing it. So, hmm. and be sure to leave a review on iTunes if you use iTunes because that I this is something I had no idea about that that's the literally the most important platform to do well on to get is good iTunes? reviews and stuff because the any awards or any kind of people looking at your podcast to like 
don't know. They podcast podcasting is crazy. There's so much out there <laughs> to learn about it. But yeah, I guess it's the most important place to leave a review. So if you can, leave us a review a review on iTunes and five stars. Just because just because we're awesome. Yeah. You may not know it now, but because but, we but can we be are awesome really sometimes. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Thank and you. We appreciate the good weather. So we're gonna go swimming. Yeah. Bye.